April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode is made possible by Rio Products. Over 20 years ago, Rio was the first fly line company to develop and sell a fly line designed specifically for spay casting, the good old wind cutter. From there, Rio developed the first commercially available Skagit line, and soon after was the first company to introduce the MoTip system, tips powerful to turn over typical winter steelhead flies. Rio remains dedicated to simplifying spay with a host of videos and resources for the consumer, all found at Spay Central at www.rioproducts.com. Pete Humphreys moved to Michigan from England over 20 years ago. With him, he brought a passion for fishing and eventually an interest in spay casting. He has achieved his MCI and THCI through the Federation of Fly Fishers and is one of the few people in the Great Lakes region who has such accreditation. In this episode of Anchored, I meet up with Pete in his cabin on the Muskegon River to learn how he came to be such an accomplished caster and to break down the spay cast. Only seven months after the recording of this podcast, Pete's wife, Philly, died in a tragic horseback riding accident, leaving him to raise a baby on his own. There's been a college fund set up for Pete's daughter, and I will include the donation link in the right above this podcast. Thank you for your support. I was born and raised in Cambridge, England, and I was born in a small village about six miles outside of Cambridge in East Anglia. I was born the son of a school teacher. My father was the, was the vice principal at the local high school, and my mum was a school teacher also, but she, she quit teaching when we were born. I moved to the States when I was 21. Why? I came here for a life experience. My brother had come back from New Zealand and Australia. He was two, he's two years older. The thing for me was I could tell what a wonderful experience it had been for him. He, came, he, he left a boy and came back this sort of worldly, worldly man, and I respected that. And I was really in sort of a dead-end spot in, in the UK. I was 21. I was living at home, not really doing much with my life. Like, I need, I need that experience. Mm-hmm. And I'd always enjoyed the idea of going to the States. So uh, I was able to work out a work placement and come over to the States. Now, were and you I, a fisherman at this time? I was a fisherman. Okay. I was a very avid fisherman, but not, not as avid as I am now. But I had a good background in reservoir trout fishing. And I was a coarse fisherman. In England, you have these two sort of distinct differences. We have game fishing, which would be trout sea trout, which is, a, which is a basically a brown trout that, that migrates to the sea, as you know, uh, and we have the Atlantic salmon. Though those are game fish. They are expensive, typically. They are exclusive. They're mostly river fishing. And then we have what we call coarse fish, which is things like carp, pike, uh, perch, which is less expensive, more accessible, and that's what, how most children start out is coarse, mm-hmm. coarse fishing. But my father was an avid outdoorsman, so... I fished from a young age as a kid. Yeah, can we talk just a little bit about your father? Sure, I'd uh, love to. Because I, when I was sitting here the other night looking on the table and I saw that book written by a man with the same last name as yeah. you, and of course it said that he's a very respected outdoorsman, Yeah. Uh, that was your father, so maybe My tell father. us a little yeah. bit about him. So he was the vice principal. I should start out by saying that he's passed away now. He's been gone for about three years. But he was the vice principal of the local high school. He was the enforcer at the local high school. And I went to the local high school. So if you got sent to him, you were in trouble. 
but he's a great character. But he has always had a tremendous love for the outdoors. I would say he was most known as a wing shooter. So he was pheasants, ducks, that sort of stuff. And he started writing at a young age. And in the early 70s, he was first published in a magazine called The Shooting Times and Countryside Magazine, which was mostly wing shooting, but it also had some fishing stuff also. But it was the largest selling weekly national on outdoor sports in the UK. And he wrote for it every week since about 1972, I think was his first publication. I have some of them here from his first ever ones. He wrote under a pen name, but we know that it was him. So he had this weekly column, and he wrote it all through his career as a school teacher. But he was offered an early retirement package at 55 to oh. get out of out of teaching, and he was doing well enough with his journalism that he was able to take a small pension and retire as a teacher and just focused on country sports and writing. He's written several books, and he would travel quite. A lot. He's kind of he's sort of doing what you're doing slightly where he created a persona for, for himself and he would be invited to go and do cool things and he would usually write them up like he got to go on trips to Africa on the railroad ray cart hunting guinea fowl and, and he would write the trip up I mean a very expensive trip but he would mm-hmm. go as a member of the press he'd write it up and it would get published in some sort of a magazine and that would allow him to go off and do these things because he, he doesn't come from a wealthy, privileged background. He's a working-class fella. Right. He's a cool cat. He's a larger-than-life character, great storyteller, did a lot of after-dinner speaking, really enjoyed life. Was uh, he inspirational he was to you from a business standpoint? He's been very inspirational to me in the fact that I'm walking a slightly similar path, or trying to, mm-hmm. trying to walk a slightly similar path where I've, I'm involved in the fly fishing industry heavily enough where I've worked hard enough to create just just enough of a name where I'm able to take advantage of some sort of hosted fly fishing stuff mm-hmm. and you know a little bit of journalism and that's a, that's a great feeling you know to be able to make a little bit of money out of a passion and a a hobby is something about that income that I make that has that good feeling about it well let's talk about how you got to that stage or this stage. You moved to America. I was 21. You're 21. 93. The land of... Milk and honey. All right. So what are you, what are you doing here? Are so you fishing yet? I'm not fishing. Along with this, with this meager work placement that was really my legal loop to come here without getting kicked out, I came on this sort of student visa that allowed me to work. Mm-hmm. And, and at the time, I was a grocery bagger. I made $5 an hour. I had an apartment behind the grocery store, and there was a field that I walked across to the store, and I wore this sort of sheep path to go back and forth, and I'd bring my groceries home. I had no car, but my saving grace was that I, I was a reasonable rugby player, and Grand Rapids at the time had a very good rugby club. Now, it's all, I say, very good. It, you could call it semi-professional, but it really wasn't because it was rugby, right? There's no money in it, but it was a good club. So I immediately got involved with the Grand Rapids Rugby Club. So you moved to Michigan from England? Correct. Oh. Straight from Cambridge, straight to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And the only reason it was Grand Rapids, Michigan was because how I went about getting my work placement, a family friend, we had a contact in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It could have been anywhere in the States. He, it just happened that, mm-hmm. that there was a, a contact that I was able to take advantage of it in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We are sitting in Michigan right now. 
Yeah. So you've obviously stayed here. We'll, we'll backtrack to that later. You're bagging groceries. Bagging groceries. And I was playing rugby. So the first thing I did, I mean, I flew in on a, on a Monday or well, Tuesday night. I, I got in touch with the rugby contact. They picked me up, took me to rugby training. There was 65 guys there. So I just landed in town. I mean, I'm fresh off the, <laughs> off the boat, so to speak. And I go to a rugby team. I've got 60 friends. Some of them are from England. Some of them are from New Zealand, Australia. Uh, lots of American fellas. So we go to rugby training and we go out for beers. They drop me back at the... It turned out a couple of the players lived in my apartment complex. So I bagged groceries and worked in the grocery store. I was like a trainee. So I bagged, I cashiered. And I remember upsetting all the customers because I would call them ma'am, which is an English term. Yeah. And they had to explain to me that like, ma'am is somebody in the States who runs a whorehouse. Okay. What? It is? Ma'am. <gasps> I like still a, say yes, ma'am. No, no, hang on. No, madam. Oh, Sorry, thank April. God. I was like, I have been madam. calling all these women whores and I did not even know it. Thank yeah. you, madam. Thank you, madam. So the, the, uh, the <laughs> management. That's so funny, Pete. Management at the point. Now, look, madam here means a lady of. Uh, the night or yeah, yeah. someone who manages the woman of the yeah, night. Yeah, so I got in trouble for that. So, <laughs> um, but I worked all these different jobs in the grocery store, meat cutter, but playing rugby was my passion. So okay. the fishing piece here came slowly to me because yeah. I was 21, 22, playing rugby, traveling all yeah, over the Midwest. Uh, other things on your mind. Having a lot of fun. Yeah. Great times. So talk to me about fishing. When does that begin? So I'd always had, uh, I, my, my father taught me how to single hand cast and I grew up my trout fishing experience was reservoir fishing mm -hmm. which is the poor man's game fishing what is reservoir fishing so most most farms or most areas get their water from a reservoir and they discovered that a great sport fishery was to stock these reservoirs with very good healthy rainbow trout and they would overwinter and you might get a rainbow trout that was five Five has a lovely tails on. They almost look like our Great Lakes steelheads, uh, some oh. of them. And they would market these reservoirs for fly fishing. They have good hatches of caddis, which 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 we would call sedge. Yeah. Um, there are there are lots of insect life. There's fry, so they'll take little streamers, and you could go to a big reservoir like Grafham Water, for example, which is a East Anglian reservoir. You could go there, show up at, at daylight, buy on with a day ticket. So it's $25 for the day. You can rent a boat for $15 a day and you can catch and keep six rainbow trout. They oh. want you to keep everything. They don't want you to put it back. They okay. want you to catch your limit because that's what they're there for. It's a put and take fishery. Mm -hmm. And you would float in the boat and you would cast floating lines with a team of flies um, and you would strip them back through the through the chop, and you'd be looking for rising fish. Maybe that's how the beginner usually starts out with their trout. Their fly fishing career in the UK would be probably still water fishing. Oh, unless, interesting. Unless you come from privilege, you have a lot of money or access to to the rivers. Rivers are always more expensive. Than yeah. so. As soon as you get a river involved and you get game fishing involved. The cost goes up. Maybe we should just take a second to just explain to the listener how private water works in England and how beets work and how sure. the farmers work with the anglers, etc. In England, you have a riparian owner who owns that fishing. He owns the water. He owns he owns the right to fish in that stream. Mm -hmm. So you cannot just say, "I'm going to go fish on the Tweed tomorrow and take my gear and go drive and go and go fishing," because somebody else owns that, and you're trespassing. And can you drift down or float down onto that property? I think you can float through in a canoe, but you cannot. Put you your cannot feet down. fish, and you cannot stop. 
Right. But I think you can float through the water. Are they farmers who own the land? And do they work with outfitters, or do they work with private individuals who are well, well off? So let's, let's take the Tweed, for example. And there are many different scenarios. But the Tweed, you might have a very small piece of it that is owned by a family that has the riparian rights only. They don't have the farmland. They don't really own anything except the riparian rights. So they have access to the bank, but the farming land that's next to the river might be owned by somebody else. So just because you own the farm doesn't mean you own the riparian rights. Oh. So a stretch might be owned, like this is owned by so-and-so family, this mile of river right bank fishing. That mile, that beat, whatever it is, might be owned by somebody and the actual farmland might be owned by somebody else. So the farmland that is directly attached to... Might be owned by somebody else. That is amazing. Yeah. Okay, I did not know that. Yeah, there are scenarios like that. And there are other scenarios where a big estate owned by a family might own the whole lot. And they own the repairing rights and the farm. But they could continue to own their farm and say, I'm going to sell my, my repairing rights. So they could sell the salmon fishing without selling the actual real estate. Got it. I'm, I'm not a, a real expert on this because I left England as a 21-year-old who yeah. had a very li- limited experience of it. I've fished a fair bit in yeah. the, since, I've, since I've gone back. I've fished for salmon over there quite a bit. But, but that's how I understand it to be done. So you take your experience there and you come here and you're obviously occupied working, playing rugby, chasing girls, all those fun things. Yes. Talk to me about when you found the fishing out here. Once my rugby career started to slow down, I, I had this sudden drive that I wanted to explore the fishing and get back into it. Okay. I knew that there was good fishing here, and I'm like, i got to start doing that. But you, rugby's a very a sport you've got to commit to 100%, or else you get, end up getting hurt. So the rugby started to soften as I got into my late 20s, and I became more interested in fishing. And I stopped in at the Great Lakes Fly Shop, and I said, look, I really would like to, to start fishing. And they set me up with a, with a cheap outfit, inexpensive. I bought a real budget price point. I got a floating line. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, they gave me a little map and said, you can go in here on the Rogue. You, know, you might want some. I was a total beginner. Total on the rookie. Rogue in Michigan. Not the in Rogue in Michigan. Not in Oregon. Michigan. Got it. Yeah. And they gave me a few bugs. It was in the spring, so there was a few sulfurs going, a few mayflies hatching. Mm-hmm. And I bought, I was the guy. I bought a couple of those and a couple of those. And I didn't have much money, and it was, and off they went. And I, I drove to the, to the place that they told me, and I went fishing and swung little beadhead nymphs and caught a few trout. I loved it, loved it. Okay. Absolutely hooked. So I started very small beginnings in Michigan because I hadn't had much experience mm-hmm. fly fishing in rivers. I was a still, I, I didn't know what a reach cast was. When okay. I first started, green as grass. When do you start hearing about these things called steelhead? I was introduced to steelhead by a couple of my rugby buddies. Oh. And my first steelhead experience, they said, well, we're going steelhead. I'm like, what the hell is a steelhead? And they said, well, it's this big rainbow trout. I said, well, that sounds like fun. It was spring. And they had a drift boat. And I said, well, let's go. So we launched the drift boat at the dam on Pine Street. We floated down and we anchored up and they were, we were chucking and ducking, which is this a practice that I is a bit Neanderthalic, but it involves a running line with a piece of pencil lead, and you tie off two egg flies on it. You sort of bounce it through the holes. It's 
Egg flies. Egg flies. So on a fly rod. Fly rod. Fly rod with running line. Though you're not fly casting. It's okay. called chucking and ducking. It's a Michigan thing. Oh, uh, I always thought chucking and ducking was with an indicator. I didn't realize no. it was that. No, it's just a straight line. So you might take some Rio slick shooter, thirty-five yeah. pound. You would tie on a swivel, and then onto that swivel you would clip a big slinky. A slinky lead. Oh, okay, yeah. And after that, you might run some eight-pound fluorocarbon with one egg fly and a nymph or something like that. You tie two, a team of two, two buggy good steelhead bugs. Right. And you can you flick it out, let it, let it hit the bottom, and you let it sort of tick, tick, tick. It's like bottom bounce. But they don't categorize that as fly fishing here, do they? I'm afraid they do. <gasps> no. I'm afraid so. Okay, so you're. Uh... We call it we you know, we call it fishing with flies, but we don't really call it fly fishing. Either. That was fly fishing. That was how it was done. And we're talking probably 18 years ago, 17 years ago. Now, I want to add that this, that practice has become less and less now. You see far more people spay fishing. I very rarely see people chucking and ducking through the holes looking for staging fish. That's so funny because when I do presentations out here, people always say, well, you know, we do a lot of chucking and ducking. And I say, well, you know, you're just, I've, I've always thought they've got a, a, weight forward fly line and an indicator and then a long leader and maybe a split shot. So I'll say, oh, you know, you can chuck and duck and do maybe a spay cast with a chuck and duck, not realizing that there's okay. not even any fly lines. You just educated me. Thank yeah. you. So you basically just strip off the line into the bottom of the boat, flip it behind you and kind of flip it forward. It almost like a spin car. You shoot it out up in the end. Plop. With a chunk of lead. With a big chunk of lead. And it's all, the key to it is the how much lead. So, so a, why not just fish a center pin? Why even waste your time I, I with a fly rod? And this was something that basically... Because it looks good in pictures with a fly reel? Sure, they considered it fly fishing. Moving forward. Yeah, so, let's move on. So talk to me... That's uh, how everybody starts. That's okay, so just like we start with a spinning reel at home in BC, you guys start with chuck and duck. That's kind of the that's the industry standard to fish for steelhead and salmon here was was, was chuck and duck was okay and, and we're, we're we're slowly we are definitely moving in a better direction and people like you are helping with that so talk to me about your own progression so from so there, my own progression we didn't catch any steelhead by the way i hooked uh, a fish and the guys were all excited you got your first steelhead and it was really sluggish and slow and i'm like well if this is a steelhead i'm not that impressed I got it in. It was a foul-hooked walleye through the dorsal fin. That oh, the, really? That was the only fish we caught. That was my first <laughs> experience with stealing fish. Okay. So I finally I got more into it, and I, I met some some brilliant people. So my journey is massively influenced by mentors. I can't speak enough about how much help I've had from wonderful people. And a big mentor is my, my good old buddy Jerry Wilson, who you've met. Like, yeah. What a character. Okay, so he's been a huge influence in my evolution. With help from the guys from the fly shop, like Bob Brendel, Glenn Blackwood, encouraging and helping, giving information freely. But I met Jerry Wilson. I'm a, I'm a part-time mortgage guy. Okay, That's what really pays the bills. And I, he came to see, he was referred to me for a mortgage, and we got chit-chat. He said, well, I live on the Muskegon. I'm like, oh, I love fishing. I'm just getting into it. I'm, I'm into everything, everything. Streamer fishing, trout fishing. I'm gone fishing crazy. I've retired from rugby. All I want to do is fish. And I love it, but, but I wasn't catching very many fish. I wasn't that good. Really was not very good, and Jerry Jerry's an avid dry fly fisherman. He just got back from the Dean right. steelheading, and we talked. All we did was we sat for an hour and a half in my office at the bank and talked fishing. We didn't do any mortgages. We just talked. We just he, we talked all about it. Then I said, "Well, look, come back tomorrow and I'll do your mortgage, but bring me the photographs of the Dean trip. I don't. 
So he came back. I, I did his loan for him to buy, a ha- to buy his house. And he showed me all the pictures of the Dean. And he talked about, about fishing dry flies and having Steeler come and eat in the dry fly. And, and, he, and he, he didn't have a phone. And he said, look, I like you. If you want to go fishing, meet me at my house at 7 a.m. on Mondays. I get Mondays off. He's a chef. So if you're not there by 7 one I'm gone. I'm, I'm going to leave. Yeah. So I was there. I took money off work, and I was there at quarter to seven at his address. I've Never been there before in my life. Yeah. So it comes out, you know, <laughs> throws me this, this massive bib. He said, you don't have enough clothes on. Threw me a bib. A bib, a, ja- a jumper, a, a jacket? Bib, but no, a big, a big sort of color. This was like November, like, or December. It was cold. Yeah. And I, of course, was dressed like a, I wasn't warm. I didn't, have, like I, I, I didn't have the right clothes. <laughs> yes, totally bit. underdressed. And yeah. he knew I would be. Threw me the overalls. Get his boat. Dumps it in the river and off we go and we go steelhead fishing and we caught quite a lot of steelhead and it, and he he took me under under his wing so that was the steelhead introduction from Jerry and we did a mixture of bait fishing we did a little bit of chuck and duck and we weren't swinging flies we weren't bait fishing but he showed me the river and he got me he got me enthusiastic about steelheading his biggest influence for me was teaching me about dry fly fishing for trout. Because he took me on the Muskegon River, which is a big river, uh-huh. and they have a wonderful mayfly hatch in the spring. And I thought I could cast. Like, I've been used to fishing these smaller rivers, and I thought I was some kind of decent guy. Like, I can cast me of that fridge really well. Uh-huh. And most people on the rivers that we fish, the smaller rivers, that's perfectly adequate. Right. I'd learned what a reach cast was by then. And Jerry Wilson likes to cast as far as he possibly can, because he can. <laughs> he's huge. He's, and he's a wonderful single-hand caster. So I go with him, and all he's telling me all the time, so you can cast, right? I go, yeah, I can cast. I'm awesome. He goes, well, are you sure? You can cast, because you know, I, 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 I ain't going to move it any closer for you, because we'll put these goddamn fish down. I like when you do the redneck accent with the, with the English, English accent. accent. Yeah. <laughs> it still sounds so classy. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> anyway, sorry, thank digressing. You. So he's like, I'm not going to move the boat any closer for you, so you, you better be able to cast. God damn it. Yeah. I'm like, well, I think I can, Jerry. Anyway, so... So he, so we were out driving, and he sets up on these on these trout. Goes right, see that one there? There's beautiful trout just eating sipping dry. He goes, there you go. So I go, okay. So, so I start, you know, I get, I make far too many false casts. I mean, it's embarrassing. I can't get there. He goes, God damn it. He goes, I asked if you could cast. You said you could. I said, well, I guess I can't. Joe goes, no, you can't. Oh wow! I did not realize that. he was such a talented single hand caster. Oh, he's a great single hand caster. Okay. So I said, well, you get it. He picks up his thing, flicks it out, makes that one false cast, lays it out. Big upstream men. You know, we're using 18-foot leaders and Grey Drakes. Pops it in, cleans it first time. <laughs> so that, that, was, that was a massive eye-opener. And that was when I realized that I was not a very good fly caster at all. I was, in fact, a fairly poor fly caster. And... That was a, a, I am because I wanted to be good. I wanted to do what he had just done. I'm yeah. like, God, I really, I, I, I have to do that. That was the moment when I committed. Because mm. I was embarrassed. I thought I was good. I wasn't. It was a slap in the face. And it, and it humbled me. And from that moment on, I, I'm going to become good at this. Because I love it. And if you can't, can't, if you love fly fishing... The one thing you can do to improve your game is to become a better caster. Mm-hmm. You give me a guy that can cast in my boat, we're, we're 80% there. I mean, really, fly casting, you know, people talk about, well, he can cast, but can he fish? Give me a caster 
the fishing will come with experience and time. And there is something about fishy guys. We all know those guys. You're going to interview Kevin this afternoon, the most fishiest guy on the planet. Yeah. Liska, you know, these guys are fishy as well, but you've got to be able to cast as a fly fisher. It's a massive part of what we do. You have to get your fly to the fish so that you can be fishy. I agree. Yeah. So I couldn't cast. I wasn't that guy. Got it. And it, and it, was, it was frustrating. And I was humbled by it. I'm like, I, I, I got to get better at the biggest part of this sport, which is, which is being able to cast. Mm-hmm. So from that moment on, I committed to it, and I got some lessons. I went to see Bob Brendel, who was a master single-hand caster at the local fly shop. And I said, Bob, help me, because he's a superb single-hand caster. And he gave me some lessons, and I'd have two or three lessons from him, and he helped me out a lot. I mean, he took a look at my cast, and he said, you're tailing on the back cast. I just started to learn and improve from a personal standpoint. But it was nothing to do with anything other than I wanted to be better at the sport that I loved and my passion. Right. That was my sort of start into becoming a little bit better at it. Got it. And I got better. Yeah. I practiced every day and out on the grass, and I improved. And it got to the point where I could catch those fish on the Muskegon when Jerry set the boat up further away than he needed to. He could have moved me closer and we could have got him. But yeah. that's, you know, he, was my, he was my mentor. That was the start of me wanting to become better. So when does the double hand come into play? So the double hand came into play for me um, because my father, since his retirement, had started to do more salmon fishing. He had made enough money with his teaching that he, he bought into a little syndicated beat on the tweed. Oh, okay. So we're sort of back on the English fishing again. But there were different ways of getting fishing. And one way is you have a syndicate where you might get 20, 20 guys, we'll all chip in, I don't know what the number is, but let's say it's $5,000. Mm-hmm. Everybody chips in five grand, and that buys you this beat. So you have, you've, bought the, you've leased the repairing rights on this beat right. for your five grand ahead, and that comes with maybe two gillies or boatmen, guides, who look after the rods, and it might be two rods a day, so the two of you fish, and you get three days a year for the season. So February through November, which is the tweed, my dad had three days a month when he could go and that was his beat for the day. So he started salmon fishing and he got into spay and he got into the two-handed rod and I was an avid single-hand guy and I went home regularly and I started playing around with his spay rods and I really liked the idea of swinging flies. I came back to Michigan and there was one guy who was doing exactly that. And that was Kevin Feenstra. But Kevin was using 14-foot rods, and he was, I don't know how much, whether he was doing a lot of spay casting or whether he was overheading it, but he was swinging flies on long rods with bait fish style patterns and hooking steelhead on the swing as if we would Atlantic salmon fish for them. Perfect. So when, and I didn't know Kevin very well, but I, I got to know him, I, I want to do that. That's next for me is I want to start doing what my dad's doing back home, what Kevin's doing. I want to, I, that's mm-hmm. something that I want to get involved in. So I got myself a rod. I believe it was an old used guide rod that one of the guides gave me for some sort of a deal, like a beat-up client rod that was, it might have been a, an old sage. And I got a wind cutter line mm. for it, the wind catcher. 
right. big floating, you know, 55 foot head floater, right. and you had the type tips. This is the exact same setup I started okay. with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's so you're like you're on like a it's something like basically back then it was like the 9140. Yes, there that's was exactly a, what I had. Yeah, I think loop, it was the greeny, the greeny blank, or, or the brownie. It might have been the brownie. Yeah. yeah. So you've got your wind cutter, your long rod, and you are suffering out there. I am awful, April. Horrible. Horrible. Yeah. I'm. I am. I am overheading it as best I can. I am. I'm hacking it out there, and it's. I'm loving it. I mean, I don't remember how awful I was, but I was awful. Yeah. It was embarrassing. Yeah. But I loved it. I loved it. I didn't catch any fish. Right. None. Yeah. For the longest time. Right. And finally, in the spring, and it was a dry, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was right across from the cabin. I know the rock where it was sitting behind. I've got the fly hanging up in the toilet in a frame, this little olive thing. Yeah. I cast, chucked it out there, and it swung around, and this drop back hen annihilated it and just ripped the rod out of my hand. And I couldn't believe it. And I was absolutely ecstatic over it. And all the suffering when you finally get the reward, whatever it may be, it's... I remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah. Like it was yesterday. So for me, that just ingrained the fact that this is something that I really enjoy and I want to continue to do. And I worked on the casting, and I'm not sure where, because I don't even know if the internet was around, but I don't know who originally... But I sort of got the idea of the snap tea. You know, I figured that out. Yeah, that was not on the internet. So that, I know, I think, if I recall... It sounds like we kind of have a similar timeline. And I kind of remember you when you first, I first remember you coming onto the scene, for sure. And I would say that we're probably, you're probably right, we're probably both about the same, I mean, late 90s, early 2000s kind of area, somewhere in there. And the thing is, there was no Facebook or anything like that, so there wasn't, you didn't know about other other yeah. people but so I, if I recall though if we are in a similar timeline the meat from a media standpoint and where you could get your information it was like books co- obviously conclaves or meetings and then Simon put out that DVD the, the DVD and the booklet that came with the line that, and the booklet that the booklet I still have really that helpful. yes I still I have read that the booklet. right that's right so that was kind of the extent if I if I'm recalling correctly that was kind of the extent of information you didn't just get on YouTube yeah. Okay, so you're you could, you're you can, reading. You're... You couldn't get anything, and then I went home. I remember going home to see my dad, my family, and I said, "Dad, I'm getting into Spain." Yeah. And he gave me because we don't have a river by us in Cambridge. Like, there's nowhere we can go. He gave me an impromptu lawn lesson ah. and showed me. And guess what? He showed he showed me a single spay, oh. but the hardest the cast to do. You lucky bugger! Yeah. And, and then he showed me a double spay. And my dad was 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 not a expert caster he was he was he was a reasonable caster but he knew the fundamentals but he showed me the principle of a single with the upstream anchor point and he showed me the principle of how you do the double spay and he showed me those casts and when i came back i practiced those casts and got better at them did you realize at this stage in the game that you kind of had a cool situation being from england and knowing that your dad your dad did the sort of fishing when it was really brand new and breaking out here in the Midwest? I think part of it, April, was that I was so I was so into the fact that the tradition of swinging flies and getting that grab on a swung fly was something that my dad was was really. I wanted to sort of impress him by yeah. by you know I've, I've, I'm a trout fisherman, but I really want to be a spay guy now. I want to swing. I want to be like him, kind of. Yeah. I want to. I want to be swinging flies, and I want to tell him about these wonderful rainbow trout that you can catch 
doing the method that he's now in because he went into it both feet into the Atlantic salmon stuff. Oh, this is great. Later okay. in his life. Yeah. So it was like I wanted to be, hey, I can spray fish. I can catch these beautiful fish. And it ended up where he, where he would come and fish with me every year. I mean, he loved coming to Michigan. Loved Aww. it. Every year he would come. But I was still bad. I was bad. I mean, I thought, again, I thought it was pretty good. Right. Getting it. Could get like 60 foot out there. 70 foot maybe on a really yeah. good one but I'm ripping anchors I mean on, I'm throwing loops the size and it's ugly but I thought, well, I, was, yeah. I thought I was good oh I thought I was good too yeah I'm, like, I'm awesome <laughs> yeah I'm a spray guy yeah right and that was really it was only me and Kevin yeah were the only guys that I, and but there were a few boys from Milwaukee to give to give credit there's a few of the old like Pinchkowski and Brandon and there was a few hardcore boys that had been doing it before for me and they would come over occasionally and we'd see them with the spay rods but and they're great guys those guys from Milwaukee but so I was horrible I was useless absolutely terrible I thought it was good back to same scenario right yeah. back, to, back to where I was with the single hand rod thought it was good and it took that light bulb moment to realise I was actually really bad mm-hmm. the same thing happened with spay yeah. and the thing for me was uh, was Andy Murray okay probably heard of Andy Murray yeah okay the pieces are coming together now so Andy was the head instructor for Hardy and had been for a long, long time. And he was designing Hardy's gear. He's a, you know, everybody knows who Andy Murray is in the spay industry. He's, yeah. a, he's, a, he's a big name. Okay, One of the nicest guys who you would have meet. So there was a spay fest happening in Michigan. And I had this little cabin, which we're sitting in now. And it became sort of a tradition. This was the first year or second year of it. And... Usually, the name that was coming would crash at my cabin. Right. That's become sort of tradition now. Whoever's coming in, whether it's, you know, we've had Deck Hogan, we've had Leif Stabber, we've had some good big names come. Simon's been here. And the presenters usually stay here. Mm-hmm. And we have a good, you know, we have fun and drink too much and all that stuff. So, Andy Murray was coming in, and Bob Brendel from the fly shop was the court and rep and was helping bring Andy in because Hardy rep corn. He said, Pete, Andy Murray's coming. And I knew, I knew who Andy Murray was. My dad talked about Andy Murray all the time. Like Andy Murray was my dad's hero. Got as it. far as fly fishing. He said, oh, I saw Andy Murray at the game fair. And I went and had a lesson from Andy Murray and Andy Murray, Andy Murray. So my dad and Andy kind of knew each other a little bit because Andy also likes to wing shoot. So I'm like, hell yeah, Andy Murray's coming. That's awesome. Brilliant. Great. So he stayed at the, the camp here. I came in early. And we took him out. We did a little bit of fishing and stuff. Well, that was when I realized how awful I was at spay casting oh. when I watched Andy Murray cast. Yeah. Yeah. I went, oh, my God. That's what it's supposed to look like. And he did his demonstration down at, at Henning Park. He had a, probably a mid-belly floating line mm-hmm. and a 15-foot, nine-weight hardy rod. And I just I watched him, his smoothness and how he picks the line. And how he's got all day in the firing position. He could hold it forever and just... And it just would go out in a beautiful loop. I just sat there like mesmerized watching him cast. And I'm like, bingo. That's what it's about. Not what, not the shit that I'm doing. Yeah. That's a guy that can cast. Right. And then I realized what a hack I was. You're chopping wood, were you? Awful. Yeah. No good. <laughs> so that was the light bulb moment for me. And I was very lucky that he was staying on a little bit and I spent some time with him and he helped me. I got to know him because he lived, he stayed in the cabin and we drank a few whiskeys together and, and he gave me some really good lessons and that was my, my start to improving a little bit was with Andy. 
he got me on the right path. Coming up, Pete and I dive into the more advanced fundamentals of the Spaycast. Again, thank you to Rio Products for their ongoing support. Rio has a complete range of lines designed for spay casting and for switch rods. Regardless of what a consumer's skill level is or which style of spay casting they prefer, Rio has got a line for it all. Be sure to check them out at www.rioproducts.com. So fast forward, and you now have your THCI through the triple F. So that means that you are a certified double hand casting instructor. I have so many casting questions for you. Okay. So first of all, how hard was it? Was it exhausting getting your your certification? You know, I, I think it's it's not as hard as people make it out to be. I think it's put on a, a pedestal and people make it more intimidating than it needs to be. It requires a lot of dedication. Uh, you've got to really commit to it and you have to practice. I practiced every single day. The hardest part of it for me was the verbal side of things. Mm. The performance test is definitely difficult. It's not easy, but you don't have to be Simon Goresworth or Andy Murray to be able to achieve what they want you to achieve in those tests. If If you're a pretty good, proficient spay caster, that stuff is all achievable. And it tells you exactly what they want you to be able to, to do. So it's not rocket science. Yeah, there's no surprises. No surprises. If you either you can do what it says on the thing or you can't. Mm-hmm. And I think they've improved the test maybe since I did it, where they might, might give you a bit more info as far as exactly what they want to see with the loop and everything. Because mm-hmm. when did you get your, your certification? I, I don't remember the, the, the exact year, April, but I'm going to say it was... A, Mel Krieger was one of the testers. Right, so, so he's, that's... He's gone now, but it was at San Francisco. I'm going to say it was 2005. Okay. So really, by the time that you got into it, to the time that you decided you were going to get your certification, you would have had to have really worked hard to get that. I, I did work very hard. I did it because I wanted to teach. I found that I, that I aspired to the fact that teaching people how to spay cast would be a lot of fun and I had good mentors I keep going back to the mentors but you know I was hanging out I got lucky to meet guys like Rick Warwood and Neil Holding those mm. boys back in the day yeah. took me under their wing me too and helped They're me so good. you know helped me with it they had just got their THCI and I and specifically Rick helped me tremendously with the oral side of things explaining things and so he helped me a lot and he said because I said look I want to get the spay I didn't care about one-handed casting at that time I want to get the spay spay was what turned me on I wanted a spay cast and I wanted to do it because I knew it would make me a better spay caster and I knew that it that I wanted to teach people so he said to me he said Pete you've got to do your CI first yeah and that's a, and I agree completely with him. Very few people have actually gone and got their THCI. Some have, but not many. Because the CI teaches you how to communicate with a student on very simple, basic terminology and explain things. So the CI was the, was the starting point. So I went and studied for the CI, helped by Bob Brendel, again, another mentor, an MCI. And, he, and we went through the test, and I was nowhere near no, not even close. He said, your, your loop's out of power on the back. Because you don't know what a tailing loop is. You can't explain it to me. So, it was a, so he's like, you've got some work to do. Yeah. So I worked on the CI and I got that. And then it was on to the spay. So let's get nerdy. Okay. 
Okay. Let's talk casting. Let's talk casting. What should we talk? What should we uh, What should we discuss? Well, you know, we were up till three o'clock in the morning last night talking about casting, and and I'm sure a lot of this would have been fun, or a lot of that would have been fun on the podcast. Uh, let's break it down a bit. Okay. Let's find a specific cast and let's let's really analyze it. When we were analyzing our casting last night, and we were talking about drift, which yeah. is what I'm ultimately going at here. Okay. You choose a cast. I, I think we'll the start. cast that best probably suits it would be a circle spay. Okay. Or, or get snapped it, whatever you want to call it, okay. where you basically reposition the fly line to the upstream side, form a D loop, and make it your upstream wind car, snap T, circle C. Okay, so you just lost 50% of my audience. Okay. So I'm going to not dumb it down as such, but I'm going to slow it down. Okay. So I'm going to have you speak as if you're speaking to someone who's never done it before, but I'm going to pick up the speed by asking you some advanced questions. Okay. So let's start small. So a person is going fishing. They've never spay cast before in their life. They are facing downstream, so they're facing the direction the river is flowing, and they are standing on the left bank. Okay. Okay, so let's go ahead and start with what you want them to do. Let's go ahead and just explain to the rank beginner what they need to do to make their cast. So, and we're talking about the circle spay. Yes. Okay. Maybe we should start by ha- I'm just going to fire questions off of you. Okay. They're going to sound ridiculous. I'll do my coming, best. Coming from me, they're going to sound really silly because we both know the answer, but I'm going to try to explain this for my, okay. my listeners. So you get to the river, and yep. you don't even know what river left or river right is. Okay. River left, river right is looking downstream always. Right. So look downstream. Left hand is river left. Right hand is river right. Right. So you're standing on river left. Okay. And that means that when you make your cast, your fly is swinging downstream. Hopefully you're catching some fish. It's reached what we call the dangle, which is when it's parallel to the shore. And now you need to make your cast. Okay. But it's on your left, your fly, it's on the downstream side of you. Correct. We should be off down off your left shoulder. Right. So, so what way is the wind blowing, Abe? Great question. Upstream. Okay, good. So upstream wind, upstream shoulder, upstream anchor. Right. So the key just for beginners here is obviously that's important. Because if you make your cast and the wind is blowing the fly back into you, there can be some injuries. Yeah. But everything, it's a good day when the wind is blowing upstream and you're on river left. Because that means you get to make the... Circle spay. Right, so let's talk about that. And let's start by just explaining the difference between a circle spay and a snap tee. Okay, so all that defines is the initial setup move. We like the circle cast in the Great Lakes because 99% of the time we're fishing with heavy sinking lines, mm. heavy sink tips. So the circle move is a more powerful lift. As all spay casts begin with this lifting motion. Thank you. Can you just say that one more time? All, all spay casts begin, begin with, with a lift. lift. It's number one. We Thank must you. unstick the line before yes. we move it. They do not begin with a pull. Drag. Yes. Yeah. The, the dreaded. They begin with a lifting. With a lift. Great. Lifting. I love the analogy of lifting. Lifting the saran wrap off the coffee table. We call it cling film in England. But lift the cling film off the coffee table, then you can move it. And that's what. That's. A, I use that as. An, I don't know who I stole that from, but I like that a lot. We'll use it. Okay. okay. So the difference between the snap move and the circle move. With a snap, it's a lift up to the to the it's a lift up to the top and then a snap back down it to the water. Mm-hmm. And that kicks the fly up that kicks the fly line upstream. So it's a fairly rapid repositioning of your fly. Yes, and it works extremely well with a floating line. Mm-hmm. Wonderful with a floating line. Not so good with 
15 feet of T T14 and a big fly. And is that just because the movement is so sharp, there's just not enough space for the gravity even to... Do you know what I'm, where I'm going with you this? You know what? You would probably be fine doing a snap because you would roll it off first and you'd snap it. I can do that. But if you're teaching a student, let's go back to teaching the student, because if you're teaching a student how to work with a sinking line, the nice big high circle and the is more user-friendly than trying to do an aggressive snap movement. Okay. So you could do a snap with a, with a T-14 because you would roll it off first and you'd snap it and you'd be able to do it. Now, but when you're saying roll it off first, so what you're saying is the circle C is better if you're trying to pick up your heavy line out of the water. Correct. Got it. And okay. with the right current, you can avoid the roll cast. Yes. So if you or, have a I know for me, if I'm casting a long line and I strip back really fast, I can help to get that line back up again. And avoid it. And avoid having cast. to do a roll cast first. Because all the roll cast is, is it just adds a bit more time that the fly's not fishing for a steelhead, Exactly. Right? And I see a lot of people feel like they have to make a roll cast before they, they make when they, their cast. When they probably don't have to, they if do they had a good lift. If they had a good lift, fast current, and perhaps a fast strip to raise or fly through the water column. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry, I did not mean to hijack. No, it's good. The only advantage in my mind, like if somebody was to say, well, what's the advantage of a snap? What's, where would a snap T outweigh a circle spade? Is there a scenario where this wouldn't work so well? What, when you say this, you mean? This high, this high, high, high lift. The high lift to create the circle C? It's, it's a physicality thing. It like, is a physicality thing. I know that I prefer the snap T, even with the heavy line, just because, let me put my coffee down so I can use my hands here. I prefer the snap because it allows me to really then have all of that line that's going to create my white mouse yeah. land nice and tight and close to my body, and it puts my hands right back down by my hips so that I can then use a little bit of a torso turn okay. to go ahead and just do my fulcrum from there. But that is me being lazy on a Skagit line. Okay. I'm just lazy on a Skagit line. I don't want to move or use my shoulder muscles or any muscles I don't need to to create a larger circle. Okay. Ultimately, do I think that your line that's going to land in front of you to create your white mouse could land in the same position? Sure, but is it, could it be argued that a circle C versus a snap T would land that belly or what's about to be your white mouse belly of line in front of you? Could it be argued that it lands it further away from you, whereas a snap would land it closer to you? I would say that... So you could have a, a I'd bigger say dealer? that you could probably land the anchor placement a little further outside of you with the circle. Okay, so I agree. Than with the snap. Right. But you got to think that the line will, line will follow the path of the rod tip. So if you come out and snap back in, that line's going to go on that angle. If you right. come up high and snap, then it's going to kick in closer to you. Right. So the only time a snap really has an advantage over a circle in my mind is, is, is if you've got overhanging obstructions. You got, I mean, you can obviously do a very low snap and you can get yeah. that line up and um, get it out. But I typically, when I fish, I'm typically doing sort of a circle more than a snap. But I want to move, I want to continue about what you talked about where the actual fly line lays on the anchor point. Mm -hmm. Because and I talked to Simon about this a little bit. You know, we might have had a whiskey or two at, at, at the time, but we talked about it a little bit. See, I think that a lot of the scadgety moves for me position the fly line almost too close to the angler. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because and what would a, a disadvantage be besides that it takes up more room in your back? Yes. My, my, 
That's one, number one. Number two is, it's my thought process that you cannot generate the same kind of load on the tear. Tear, what do you define as the a tear? tear would be the beginning part of my sweep. Okay. Okay? Generating so the, the white load. mouse. Yeah. I want that fly line to be in line with my rod tip and even preferably outside of my rod tip part. Okay. If that fly line lands close to me and I make that sweep, well, my rod tip is out in front of me. The fly line is inside that that tip. Mm-hmm. It's a lot harder to generate tear and energy and get the white mouse driving off that water. Because, is that because, because it's inside the rod tip. Yeah, so I you mean, have a bit of slack there. Yeah, you have slack there and it just yeah. doesn't... Think about it. I'm basically taking... My fly line comes inside me now, and I'm ter- trying to turn that fly line around. Okay. You can generate a bit of tech, but getting it out into the water in front of you. Got it. Okay, so what you're saying is if I did a high snap, per se, mm-hmm. what that's going to do, because the line always follows the rod tip, it's going to put that line close to my body. So it's going to land the line. If you're visualizing this Correct. as a beginner, it's going to land the line in front of me in a crescent kind of shape or like, you know, it's going to be my white mouse to where my anchor is basically on my upstream side. So if I have it close to my body, let's say it's three feet away from my body. Yes. And your rod's rod's 14 14 feet feet long. Correct. Of course, if I go to sweep, there is inevitably going to be slack between my rod tip and where my line is touching the water. And slack is never great in casting. So what you're saying is with a circle C, further away with your line landing further away from your body directly underneath the rod tip you could begin your initial load with your sweep or tear as you called it or yes. you, you named it without having that slack so you are starting from the load immediately correct the moment ah. that rod tip moves huh. white mouse begins and you're generating tear and loading the fly rod That's white so mouse means that the rod's loading yeah you can do it with the snap but you have to think about that you're going to go out and in It'll follow, you know, it's all about the part. If you come up and do it sort of parallel with the river, like a lot of people do, yeah. then it's going to lay straight and it's going to be inside and close. Yeah. Because think about the, the classic sort of Skagity move with the high lift and the, uh, and the fold across Drunk. where you cross your arms and yeah. you drop the rod basically parallel to the water there. Dunk. That will typically put that fly line maybe a couple of feet away from you. And then you talk that around and generate the tear and go. Well, Annie Murray taught me and he always would lift and push, set it out into the current in front of you. Mm-hmm. And he said it's probably from fishing in tweed, in the tweed boats, you've got the oarman rowing and the oars there. So you, could, you physically, you have to lift it and set it out in front. Okay, hang on. So I've got to back this up because we just did a complete switch. We have, sorry. No, that's okay. That, this but is good. So it, it illustrates my point about getting the fly line outside of the path or in line with yeah. the path of the rod better than the circle. I always thought you get a deeper load with a bigger D-loop if your line was close to your body. But what would an advantage be then to having your line land close to your body versus not having it land close to your body? A advantage to having it close? Yeah, an advantage. Just what you said. You're going to be able to utilize more fly line into the D-loop and less line into the anchor, which is going to be the most efficient cast. Okay, so Most that's a pretty of, yeah. hefty advantage. It is, but the reality is is that with short heads, when you make that turn and you draw back, you're pulling everything back into position as it is. If you're in control and you've, lo- you've got that wonderful load off that white mouse, mm-hmm. and we talked about that drift, 
if you've got that smoothness and that nice load going and you draw back in, you're going to pull that train track tight and straighten that anchor out. Mm-hmm. But Abel, wouldn't you agree that my students, the biggest problem they have is too little anchor? Yeah, anchor they're, pop- ripping. they're popping their anchor. They're popping so- their anchor. So if, if, you, if you can get a, a student to set everything out, out in front when they turn it around... They've still got plenty of head to make the cast. Mm-hmm. Most people are too aggressive and too powerful. You cannot be powerful without an anchor. Well, let's let's get there. Let's do this step by step. This is okay. exciting. I love this stuff. Right now, we're at just simply setting your anchor. Okay. Let's go to the next step. So now you've made. We've discussed the difference between having your line in a snap to land close versus yep. far. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and, and stay on the same page as you and say that I'm going to set my anchor with my snap tee, and now my line is going to be directly under my rod tip, and then that way we've gotten rid of any of that slack. So now we're going to begin our tear. So talk me through the next step. What do you tell your student for the next step? Okay. You're going to begin your, your sweep, if you will. The sweep is, is probably the hardest part to teach a student, in, and in specifics it's the circle up move to the firing position or the key position. You call it something else, and I liked what you call What did you call it? The, the home position. The home position. Chris okay, Cepios, the okay. Home I like that a lot. I'll probably steal that. Yeah. So the hardest part is getting the speed and the trajectory that that tip has to travel to form a good D-loop. That's the most difficult part. We talk about the spiral staircase. Yeah. That's a good one. I like that a lot. The rod tip must always incline. Yes. And for people who, again, if you're trying to follow along with this and you're brand new, what we're talking about now is after you have made your initial step in the snap T, your rod tip is back to downstream, but your fly has been basically repositioned or snapped, if you will, back upstream. So now if you can get your rod tip to your right shoulder with that upstream wind, you can make your cast off your prominent shoulder off your upstream side and not be hit by the fly. But what we need to do before we can do that is get our rod tip from our left side back to our right side. So where Pete and I are at now in the conversation is he has taken his fly from fishing downstream. He has repositioned it upstream, but in doing so, it has consequently put his rod tip back to the left side. And now he needs to generate some load here and he needs to get his rod tip from down near the water on his left side and he needs to reposition that rod tip to his right side, to his home position where he can go ahead and make his cast. So walk me through how you get that rod from the left to the right. Well, I talk about tempo, and I talk about speed. I talk about the white mouse. I show them what the white mouse is. What is the white the mouse? The white mouse is a little piece of spray that comes off the fly line during the sweep. Mm-hmm. The white mouse is an indication that the rod is loading, the rod is bending, it's storing energy. Because the, the, the sweep to the D-loop is the back cast. Performs the same function as a back cast when you overhead and single hand cast. So a good strong D-loop is your good strong back cast. And you can't have a good forward cast with a crap back cast. The white mouse is our friend. We love the white mouse because he talks to us. He lets us hear him. Because not only is he a visual aid, but he also, when he stops, is the timing for the forward stroke. So we talk about the difference between a white ferret or a white fox, where they're overpowering, and we talk about the white shrew. So we talk about the speed, and I like this. This most of my stuff's been plagiarized from. I nipped different people from. I'm not sure. I think this was Bruce Berry, maybe from Buell. I heard him use this at a, at a demo. He said, "Let's call, let's say it's 30 miles an hour. I don't care what it is. It might be 100. Might be the speed needed to generate Mr. Mouse." I'm like. 30 miles an hour, and I show it to the student. 
and they'll practice and they'll usually be at 50 miles an hour because <laughs> they'll be getting this white ferret spraying off the line. <laughs> yeah. Right, okay, you're at 50, I want you at 30. So we talk about the speed and the smoothness and how we don't want herky-jerky movements during that sweep out. It should be nice and smooth. We talk about the trajectory of the rod tip. Mm. It must never dip. You never go down. Much go up. Never you go down. only go up. That's the golden rule with the sweep. So I always teach them to start with the rod low. Yes. And I will get them to tap the water with the rod tip. Because if you're low, where can't you go? You can't go any lower than the water. So as long as you start at the water, the chances are you're going to make an incline. If you start with your rod tip, say at shoulder yeah. height, and you can only go up from there, you're going to end up with your arms extended way, way up. You are. Great casters can still make that work. Guys like Ed Ward will just stop here and just turn that around the martini glass. And they can make that go. But my point is, you've got six feet of fly line hanging there. That's six feet that you've wasted. That's six feet that could be on the water and generating load and tear and energy to get the cast that little bit more efficient. So in my mind, when I'm teaching, low rod, tap the water. And we just work on this, on this smooth application of power. Follow the fly line with the rod tip until you hit straight across in front of you. Which would, would that be at sort of a 90 degree angle to the bank? Yes, it would, wouldn't it? Stay, stay low, follow the fly line until you hit 90, and then climb up the staircase, the spiral staircase, or the corkscrew. Mm -hmm. Have them imagine that, that they're standing on that spiral staircase, and they've laid the blank of the rod on that handrail in front of them. And they're going to roll that blank up that handrail up to the key position. Ultimately what that does is it maintains attention all the way through the entirety of your cast. Yeah, because what's the number on enemy of slack. Like slack? So if you're not smooth and you are abrupt, the rod overloads, straightens, kicks slack into the fly line. Exactly. So the smoothness is the key, and that comes from that tempo. Talk about the waltz. One, two, two. There's tempo display, smoothness. Mm -hmm. There's that 30 mile an hour. There's the visual aspect of the white mouse. There's listening to the white mouse. You can get a student to look and see what's happening. You can really go, you can do leaps and bounds, but if they're just focused on the target, you actually get to look at stuff. And we might be moving ahead here. No, no, it's but, good. Uh, this is good. Um, a great teaching analogy about the formation of the D, because that was the hardest thing for me as a student, was getting that circle up, you know, to that circle move. And all it is, the key to really getting distance and getting power in a spade cast is getting the energy of the D-loop going directly away from the target. In hundred. That's the 180 rule. That's really what that is. Mm -hmm. But it's not so much the train track stuff. That's all important. But it's getting the D-loop, getting the energy of the D-loop going back behind you. Not up, not up there, not up to the trees, because that's not a straight line, is it? Not down to the water. We want the energy of the D going straight behind me, into the bushes, basically. Mm -hmm. And this is where all of your single-hand casting knowledge comes into play as well, just understanding the importance of having straight-line paths. Of course paths. it is. Yeah. Of course. It's all the same physics. Yeah, exactly. It's just a spay cast involves... One's aerialized, one's One's aerialized, one's not. Yeah. One, we have an anchor and a D-loop. The other one, we don't. Right. A great teaching analogy is a Belgium cast. Okay, yeah, let's talk about that. So the Belgium cast is sort of a continual cast, but the... The difference with the Belgian cast is that you put the loop behind and below the rod tip. 
So I'll demonstrate to my student with a with with a spray rod. I'll I'll just do some. I'll do throw a few loops off the top of the tip. Okay, cause so here's a here's a regular loop. There's that's what a fly loop looks like, right, guys? Because that's what they're trying to generate most. Of the, that's cutting the corner, coming back on too steep an angle. It's just them coming straight back because that's what they've done their whole life with a single-handed rod. Mm -hmm. I then you start showing them loops off the underneath of the rod. And you keep it aerialized. So you're throwing the. You're, you're throwing the loop behind and below the tip on the back cast and coming over the top on the forward cast. So it's a normal loop going forward. The loop is just under and behind going, going back. back. And it's usually a pretty big open loop. Right. Because a and D loop is an open loop. You want an open loop. Exactly. And you do the Belgian cast or the oval cast when you have got a heavy setup, say if you're fishing a bad, big bass bug or something like yeah, that. And it can be, be user-friendly in the wind. Yeah. Correct. But by showing them that and then letting the anchor, slowing down to the point where you start to create an anchor, whilst you're, whilst you're demonstrating, I'm overheading it, then I'll slow down and let it touch and let them see the shape of the D-loop that has formed with that flat and then that raise at the last minute to turn up. That's what creates that fat, bulbous D-loop. Right. Now, what you've done probably 16 times since we've been talking in the last three minutes. And I realize people can't see me, can No, they? it's okay. That's what I'm here for. I'm going to help you walk through this. So what you're talking about right now is when your hand is casting kind of up by your head. So at this point, mm -hmm. our rod tip is vertical or we're up in the air. We're, we are approaching the home we position. Are we are in home position. Fine, firing position. In your enthusiasm, what you keep doing with your hand is you keep drawing this slight curvature in the back part of the cast. In the final part of the cast, before you start to align yourself straight to come forward, you are really emphasizing this, this turn or this curve in the back of your D. Because what a lot of casters do is they have set their anchor appropriately, they sweep around, but then they do what we call cutting the corner where they basically just suddenly forget their spay casting and they turn into a single hand caster and they go straight back, straight forward. And Excuse me, it works at times. With great timing. If your timing's okay and if you're lucky enough. But what a lot of people don't do or aren't even taught, I've found, is to understand that if they just slow the last part of that deformation by their head and allow it to have this kind of round curved circle up, they will not cut the corner, they will maintain load the entire time and they will be able to also slow down enough to allow their anchor to stick, and then therefore the cast will be proper. Yes, Does that's that exactly right, and I think that's leading into what we talked about last night with the drift. So talk to me about your definition of the drift. Okay, so, and again, somebody help me with this. Yeah, well, and, and just to make this even more complicated for you, I'm sorry, can you explain with a single hand what the drift is? Because some people, I mean... They've never even heard of a drift, which is ludicrous. Everyone has to know what a drift so is. So a drift is you've made your your stroke and you've stopped. The loop has formed. On your single hand cast. Yep, yeah, and it could be on the forward cast or on the back cast. But let's just talk about the back, back cast because that's the most obvious one. You power back and you stop. The loop's formed. You then continue the hand back in the direction of the fly line. That's drifting back. And then you begin your forward cast again. Mm -hmm. So what drift does, drift is a advantageous move because it lengthens your stroke. To accommodate a longer line. Accommodate a times. longer line, longer tip path, longer flyer. It gives you more of the translational stroke, which is the sort of the setup, the drag, the pull, 
the straight before the rotation, which is the real power snap at the end. Mm-hmm. So it lengthens your stroke, which allows you to take out all the slack. That's what a longer stroke does. That's why you need to lengthen the long, your stroke with more line because there's more slack in it. Right, so it's not to be confused with creeping, which is going in the opposite direction, which, which is, is a fault, slack. and it shortens your stroke, right. and it causes tailing loops because you use abrupt power, and the rod tip goes in a concave path, right. and you get tails. Okay, so that's with the single hand in a nutshell. Yeah. Double this, hand. This is, this, so with the double hand, the analogy is, is that the stroke is made, let's take the snap T for the, for the example, the circle space. So you've set the anchor up, mm-hmm. your rod is low, you've tapped the water, it's in the downstream position on the left hand side of your body. You begin your sweep and you generate an, a nice mouse to start, you've got the 30 mile an hour speed. Once you hit that right angle, so you're completely across from the river now, pointing dead across to the other bank. Once you hit there, when you start that, that climb, I consider, I I talk to students about treat it as a drift. Because they understand what, most single hand casters understand what drift is. And if you treat it as a drift, you decelerate to the firing position, which is not what fly casting really is, is it's an acceleration to a stop with the exception of forming a D-loop when you're spay casting, you should really be decelerating to the stop. It's a deceleration. If you keep the gas all the way on, with modern anchor. fly lines, mind you, not so not necessarily true with an 80-foot head. Okay? No, no, no. But with modern lines that we work with with students, you have to slow down. Because mm-hmm. if they keep the gas pedal on all the way to the firing position, what happens? They pop their anchor. Every time. Yeah. Every single time. So I love that analogy. It's an Andy Murray thing. I was warming up at Spare Armor. He was there when I did my test. And he just came up to me and goes, dude, he's a lovely man. He said, just slow down. Mm-hmm. He goes, treat that mouse. I was doing so so he said, He said, there's the stroke. The rod's loaded. You've already bent the rod. Just stay with that bend. Don't keep, don't try to bend it anymore. You've bent it, keep the bend and drift it. Stay with that load to the firing position. So it's a teaching aid then to to define that as the drift the, or to define yes. the point it, in which you have gone basically from creating your white mouse to starting to begin your circle up you're saying that at that point when you begin your circle up by defining it as a drift correct it helps as a learning aid for students exactly right april oh, whether it okay. whether it meets the physics of a drift or not I don't know. It probably doesn't in the casting because technically well, you'd have guys, to stop and then drift. They would say that it's not a drift. Those masters guys will argue definitions till of we all die. Right. But yes. But for me, the light came yeah. on. It mm. was a massive like ding dong ding dong. Oh, co- well, of course, I've been give just just keeping too much gas, adding that last flick. All that does is shock waves, add slack. I've lost all my tension. Yes. My rod is unloaded. It's. It's getting that smoothness. And by right. thinking of it as a drift, it just makes you slowly decelerate into the firing position. Okay, so in that drift, what are they doing? What are you what is the proper stroke or, or action in that drift? Talk to me from that point on. And I, I think the drift itself is is all about speed. It's not so much about the trajectory of the rod. We're teaching the path of the rod with the circle up, with the spiral, with the spiral staircase. So it's it's purely about about tempo. 
Oh yeah, because when you think it's drift, got nothing you, to do. You, know. you think back and up. You know, you think drift equals back and up, which is why I never thought that my drift began until I was at home position, and then there was that slight drift. I never thought to associate the drift being when my rod tip was still in front of me, coming around because me. Because what I think it does when they think drift, it means that they smoothly decelerate. Mm-hmm. And so when I say start start drifting here. Their mentality is, I'm going to start slowing down. But the reality is, is they don't start slowing down until they're maybe here. Mm-hmm. And they just smoothly Can back off the gas pedal. Can you just here for people who can't see? Sort of, uh, I would say, three quarters of the way to the firing position. That's when they really decelerate and just come back to that firing position. Now, at, at which point, so the physics, let's talk physics. So yeah. they've bent the rod. It's loaded. It's stored. The spring is stored, loaded. And as they come back smoothly, they've stayed in touch, they've kept at the load, and then as they decelerate and pause, that unloads that energy into the deal. And at that point, just because they can't see your hands, when you say... I'm at the home position. Thank you. You're at home position. Home position. Key position. See, I'm using home position. But, like that. Great. Thank home you, Chris Cepio. Okay. So they've energized their D-loop, and they now have, now they have time because they've formed... This living thing that's behind this nice, fat, soft D-loop that is, that is now being energized and will hang for them. It gives them a bigger sweet spot by doing that. A mark of a great spay cast is how long can you hold at home position and still make a cast without your bottom of your D-loop tr- collapsing? Yeah. Try that. Play have, with that. Yeah, I've been, I have been playing with that. The greats could hold that and hold it because they've stayed in touch. They've stayed in touch. They've stayed in touch. They've stayed in touch. They're keeping it there. I mean, they might still just be drifting, 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 drifting. And they've maintained that tension at the firing position. And then they can just nice and easy come forward and make that beautiful cast. That's the real skill. That's, that's what I want to inspire my students for is that smoothness. Looking back on videos, I noticed that my most, my poorest casts were when I would refuse to lift my elbows. And then as soon as I began to not only slow that my D loop down and really ensure that I'm indeed circling up and not just firing back into a single hand position, when I would sl- really round out the back part of my D loop so I wasn't cutting corners, and when I would lift my elbows just slightly depending on how long of a line I'm mm-hmm, casting, sure. it made all the difference between an, an okay cast and a, and a good cast. And I notice a lot of people don't lift their elbows. Can you explain why that's important? And I think maybe, you know, West Coast guys using slightly longer line, you guys, are, you guys, I noticed that when you're long, when you're long liners, I noticed that their style, and this is all style it's points. It's all style, Style yeah. points. A lot yeah. of the longer liners will do. A lift. A exaggerated lift. I like the telephone analogy. Yeah. For me. Yeah. Answer the telephone. Hello. Like. Yeah, hello. So you can envision me picking a phone up to my ear. I, I rarely get up here with the rod. I, I, I try to be here. Because you're casting shorter lines. Short lines. Yes, yeah, so short Scandy line, style, short bottom stroke. hand stroke. You know, yes. We're not using these, these longer lines. But you've got to have but that. But is there still a half inch lift? Even on a Skagit line, do you lift those elbows two inches? Yes. Yes. And yes. that's what I mean. I am not a long line caster. I'm a good mid-belly. I'm not a long line so caster. So let's talk mid-belly. Can you explain to people why, if even if they're casting a short line, if they then do a short lift, why it does make a difference in their cast? Oh, it's interesting. Um, let's think about it. I mean, honestly, it's not, it's not something that I have right on the tip of my tongue. Let's let, but let's think about the physics of it. Number yeah. one, I would assume that it gives you a little bit more stroke length because two inches here 
is is going to add probably a foot of 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 stroke, but I would think that it's 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 most likely because it's giving you that little bit more more height, and it's going to prevent the bottom of that D loop sticking onto the water. Mm. Could it be taking each leg of your of the parallel loop, and okay, I, I know what I'll do. Exactly. I know, I know I'll I'm do not it. exactly. Sh- You're a single hand guy. Yes. Let's talk single handing. On your back cast of your single hand, do you lift your elbow? Yes. Yes. Why? Mm, I don't really know. It's a great question. And if you're casting a short line, it's a tiny lift. And if you start to lengthen and cast a longer line, it's a longer lift. Lift my elbow. And so I was increasing stroke? Yeah. I mean, it increases your stroke. I mean, short line, short stroke, long line, long stroke. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, if you're going to drive anything back, you don't want to drive it back and down. So I've it's got uh, to drive back and up. Correct. Otherwise, you'll collapse it behind. So my, I think, I think that my answer would be with a longer line, you need this longer stroke, and adding that that lifting move is going it, to it's, it's going to increase your stroke length. But I don't really know what else. What, I mean. Are you going to generate more power as you come down the mountain a little bit with the forward stroke coming from a slightly higher position? See, my, my teaching would be I teach the rectangle. So from the nose across to the ears, I want your hands to stay in that. Oh, that's great. Can you say that? This is a, I'm learning right now. Okay. So, so I, I draw a rectangle box on the student going from their nose to the middle of their of their ears yeah. and down to their sort of belt okay. okay, and sort of here. And I don't want your hands coming outside of that rectangle. Okay. So when I teach, and granted, I'm teaching short lines, scatter heads and scanny heads, not, not long, very lined, where you really, where you probably have to come out of there. But I'm teaching everything stays within, within here as you look at it. I don't want you up here. Think, think about the power. I'm going to punch you in the Please face. don't. Don't. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm I'm much more powerful there. Yeah. Are you box? Yeah. Well, my boxing has helped me immensely with understanding casting because of physics and, and power generation. So, are you going to punch me from? Am I more powerful from here? No. Absolutely. Or am I more powerful from there? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like lifting weights with your arms above your head versus doing a bicep curl using your core as your square, like you're saying. So I try to I try to teach within from the nose and the ears down. Keep those hands within that rectangle so mm-hmm. there's definitely lift there but i don't add this extra no no i'm talking a two inch a tiny lift and again i might just be splitting hairs it's, it's probably a little bit of drift you know it probably does then it does everything that drift does which is basically lengthening your stroke i love it now from here after you've created that beautiful d loop there's another step of the cast now you've got to come forward so talk to me about that okay so you've got to make your forward stroke comes down to starting out with that deadline roll cast as the practice drill to get the muscle memory for the home position and the forward stop. Yeah. You have to ingrain that into your muscle. If you don't have a good forward stroke, you are screwed. I can tell before someone makes a spay cast, just by watching them simply roll cast their line downstream, what I'm in for. You are bang on. Because I tell you what, You've got a student that has a good forward stroke and is loading that fly rod and unloading that fly rod on the forward stroke and can stop the rod and form a loop. Chances are 
they're going to have a pretty fulfilling lesson, as in they're going to make some casts that they'll be very happy with and that they'll go, because you can get a lot of stuff wrong and have a great forward stroke and make a fishable cast. So without a forward stroke, you, you, you cannot go forward without a forward stroke, and you need one off both sides of your body. Right. That's, that's goal one for me with any student is, do you have a forward stroke? Can you get the muscle memory down for the home position, key position, and the forward stop? Tell me your ideal forward stroke. My ideal forward stroke. Boy, that's a, that's a good question. My ideal forward stroke. So in my mind, and I don't really like clock faces that much because it depends which way you're looking at it. But let's just use it. But it let's depends it. where you're looking at it. So let's say that I'm looking at the clock. And so I want my key position to basically be, I would say, perfect place would be maybe 115, 130, let's just say. The forward stroke is a stop at, I would say, 10.30. And I draw the analogy with the student by holding my hands up like this and saying, that's the power. I want the power. Where's that pointing? If I draw a straight line between my firing position Mm -hmm. and my forward stop, where's the energy going? So you're holding your hands in a V to demonstrate the proper trajectory. So draw the line across the finger points. The trajectory is straight across the top of the river. That's where I want my power. That's where the stop is. Most students, this ends up at 12.30, and this ends up at 9.30. Now draw the line, April, between point A, firing position, and the stop. Your trajectory is facing down. Of course it is. Yeah. That's a good analogy for a student. It's like starting to throw a baseball with your rod straight up at 12 o'clock. In from home field. From home, yeah. You You are inevitably going to throw that ball into the ground, whereas if you started your throw with the ball with your hand further back, You've just changed your trajectory so that you can allow your ball to travel further. Exactly. I, I, I use the baseball analogy a lot. Perfect. Okay. So that's the perfect forward stroke. Think about another thing with this, about loop size. Mm. What determines the size of a loop? It's the path of the rod tip. Okay, mm-hmm. the rod goes on a straight line, we get a very tight loop. If it goes on an open or convex path, we get an open, open loop. Right. Well, you can see there, if you draw a line between those two points with the perfect stroke, we have a straight line, correct? Yes. Now, this one, we also have a straight line, but the reality is, is that the rod tip has gone like this in an open arc. You could still argue that that's a straight line, but the rod tip is, is, is of course, travels outside of this, and it stops there, and there's the big open wide loop, which we don't want, right? We don't want a big open loop. We want a tight loop. A good analogy is, and this is one of my fathers when you teach me with a single hand rod, is imagine that there's a dining room table on all fours and it's on top of the water in front of you. Okay, just picture it. You're wading up to your knees and there's this big countertop, big dining room table. When you make the forward stroke, put the front on top of the table. Think about the table there. Accelerate to a stop, put it up and onto that table. What that does is it makes you follow the trajectory that we discussed and because of that, you, you cast up and the rod tip naturally goes on a straighter line. So I can have a student that's using too much top hand, pushing through, creating open loops. And I'll say to them, put it on top of the table, put it on top of that big dining room table. And they'll go, oh, and all of a sudden they've shortened their stroke, got a much tighter, tighter loop. And the trajectory is correct. So the loop goes up and out and turns over and lays down onto the water. And so with a short or mid belly, what you're, or let's just say short heads. Because all, all we do is short heads now, right? Yeah. That's all I teach with most of the time. Yeah, so let's keep it simple. And most people listening are, are fishing short heads. When you have finalized your stroke or finished your forward stroke, there is a bend in your arm. 
Yes, absolutely. For my style. Right. And I, th I think if you don't have that bend, you've used too much top hand. You don't need that length of stroke with a modern, with a modern short head. So a good way of seeing if your forward stroke needs some improvement is simply by looking at your elbow and seeing if there's a bend in it as you've delivered. Couldn't forward. agree more. Couldn't agree more. Okay. I want them to keep that 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 bend in the the elbow. A teaching another analogy again. As instructors, we have these these analogies. They call them like the bag of tricks stuff, right? yeah. and it's just ways to communicate with students. Some work, some don't. So you have to have a few different ways of of saying it. another nice one that seems to work is I say, okay, you've got a two-handed hammer. Okay. okay. So let's say it's a sledgehammer, or whatever. It's it's a long-handled hammer. It's a two-handed hammer. And at the at the head here in front of your head is the the, the head of the hammer, and you have a nail that's on a wall right in front of you, okay? If you're going to knock that nail in, you're going to draw this hammer back, and you're going to go thunk with both hands simultaneously pushing and pulling, and you're going to thunk. Into the wall. Into the wall. The wall's right in front of your face. Thunk, thunk. Then you can see that leaves the bend in the elbow. Mm -hmm. And we talk about wrist, because a very common fault is people add too much wrist, which is a cast killer. Well, you can't use wrist with a sledgehammer. You can't knock a nail in by just wristily bringing your wrist back and wristy forward. Mm -hmm. So I like that that analogy. And you know, flicking the apple off the end of the rod tip, flicking mm. mud off the end of the rod tip, it helps them to generate the load and the stop, which is because the stop is ultimately what unloads. Talk to me about grip. Grip. I was going to go into that because people might be just going, sledgehammer, well, I cheat grip it lightly. So you've gone from a sledgehammer, which you probably might make think the students might grip it, grip it, overly grip it. Grip the one very, very lightly. Like it's made of eggshell, made of glass. If you can get them to grip it lightly, they typically will back off the power. Do you put your thumb, I mean, I'm looking at your hands right now. Do you put your thumb on top and utilize that thumb so that you ensure that as you come forward, you can load on a straight line path with that thumb and follow through for maximum energy? I think the thumb can be a helpful teaching tool and it can also be a bad teaching tool. Mm, interesting. Okay. So a lot of people that use too much top hand, if you if the thumb is on top, you naturally are going to use this. If you've got your thumb sticking straight up, it naturally, the physics is going to make you want to push that top hand. So if I've got a student who's using too much top hand, which is extremely common, I will have them do more of a fist grip where they come around the rod and hold and touch their fingers. But the key element is to grip it lightly. I mean, when I'm, when I'm, I'm, I'm finessing it. I'm not really rod on top. I'm almost holding it between my fingers, like, like pinching onto, you're holding onto a bagpipe sort of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm gripping it between my fingers. I'm not gripping it like it's a... Yeah. So basically, it would be as if you were, okay, if I was eating a sandwich... Yes. And I had my hand on a sandwich right now. I've got one thumb underneath the sandwich. Yes. And two fingers, or all my fingers over top. I'm gripping it lightly between my fingertips and my thumb. And on the bottom handle, I'm gripping it onto the ring grip right at the bottom. Right. And a lot of students will have their whole hand and their, their hand will be jammed up against the, the uh, reel. I try to discourage that. So that's what that piece on the bottom is for. If somebody's using too much top hand, I'll have them shorten their grip. You'd be surprised how a common mistake is too much top hand. If you have yeah. them shorten their grip, they will, they will tend to, to use more of the bottom hand. I prove a point sometimes. I take my index finger and my middle finger, and I put the, the, the upper cork in between those two fingers, so I'm hardly even holding That's it. That's great. 
And then I cast with just those two fingers and, of course, my bottom hand, just to say, okay, look, you do not need to use the upper hand like and that. And I'll, I'll do something very, very similar. I'll basically just, I just sort of circle it, circle around it with one finger and just drive the rod with the bottom. And I'll, and I'll grip the bottom, I'll grip the bottom hand or with, with my palm. So I'm not even holding it. I'll say, look, watch this hand. And I've got it. And I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll just drive everything off that bottom hand, and then, and show them that the bottom hand is the engine. Okay, so can you just elaborate on that a little bit because that's something that a lot of people don't realize. So, when you're fishing a short head, and we're doing that beautiful drift, like you're saying, where you're coming up and you're circling up, obviously the rod tip follows the hands. So your hands are drawing a circle, really. So you have taught your muscle memory so that your bottom hand is drawing the butt in a circle, which then, of course, leads the rod. I mean, the butt's the strongest part of the rod, so why would you not want to lead the rod with the strongest part of itself? Mm -hmm. So you are not using your... Up I mean, obviously, it's a fine balance. You're, you're using your upper hand and your bottom hand to draw this circular motion, but you're primarily using your bottom hand. Is that, that right? bottom hand is... That's the engine. I would say, in a, if we're going to put it into percentages, I'd like to try to... I would say 70% is being driven by the bottom hand. Great. That's 30% top hand. Top hand's guiding, steering, and it's playing a factor in the strokes. Of course it is. But the bottom hand is what really powers, powers my style. Can you explain underhand casting like they do sure. uh, overseas? Underhand casting developed by Goran, Goran Anderson, you know, guys like Henrik Morkinson, Leif Stavmo, those boys are the underhand guys. It basically just means exactly what it says. The underhand is driving everything. The top hand really becomes a pivot point. Mm -hmm. They use a much more compact grip. They use a lot of body. It's a lot of transition with the body, which I like for any any sort of spade casting is that, that shift. But it's a very compact stroke where the underhand drives the rod. And the That's, advantage to this is? The advantage is, is that you're bending the fly rod right at the grip. I mean, you're trying to bend it at its fattest, deepest part, which is going to be much more, if you use a lot of top hand, you're, you're going to load the fly rod more into the rod tip, per se, but with the bottom hand, you're loading the rod very deep. And a great analogy is, is from a Henrik Mordingson video where he takes, a, he takes kind of a long stick and he holds it in his hand with a, with a large gap between them and he moves the bottom of the stick and the tip moves back and forth, but not with a great amount of, of speed. He then slides this top hand down and wiggles the bottom of the stick and goes... It increases the power. So, Pete, you're, you're actually quite young. I mean, you're 43 years old. Yeah. And in my opinion, you are the perfect guy to keep this sport growing. You're, you're thank experienced. You. No, thank you. You're experienced... You're young. You're an exceptional teacher. I mean, I came to you at one point saying, I mean, I wish we lived closer, but I came to you being like, look, can you help me with, with my casting? Because I know that you're the guy. And I do see you being the instructor's instructor. I can see you being that guy. Oh, I'm very flattered. It's just very flattered. And I, I appreciate that, April. Yeah. No, but but yeah, I do a lot of it. I'm very proud. I, I really do a lot of it. And... Every, every time I teach, I learn something new. So what's next for you, Pete? Next for me is I'm having a baby. You're having a baby in one week? I'm having a baby in like two weeks. My wonderful wife, Philippa, uh, we are pregnant with a baby girl. I'm not going to tell anybody what her name is, although I probably could because this, this is going to go out. Her name's going to be Millie, um, and she's due in about two weeks. It's my first child, and we are absolutely thrilled. 
So that's my big next chapter. So I might have to take a little time off from the fishing scene, but I don't plan on slowing down. Um, hopefully she will she will enjoy and embrace fly fishing as well. So we're super excited. I'm excited for you. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. If somebody wanted to book a lesson with you, how would they go about doing that? Well, honestly, yeah, well, the best way is just to either give me a call. Uh, my phone number is 616-304-2009. That's my cell phone. Give me a call. Leave me a message. You know, um, they can also contact me via email. My e- email address is p h u m p h r e at i b c p dot com. So your full your name. My name minus the y and the s at igluboycatpeter dot com and my. My contact details are on Kevin Feenstra's website as well. If you go to the links on Kevin, because Kevin's got a pretty nice website, and Kevin and I do a few things together. Yeah. He's a great friend of mine. Dear friends. And yeah. I will post a link in the write-up okay. of this. So go ahead and look for that, uh, where you found this podcast. So okay. thank you very much for My your pleasure, time. My pleasure, April. It's been oh, awesome. Really enjoyed it. I'm sorry I asked everybody. Is there anything you wanted to add or ask me? I don't think so, April. Let's go eat some breakfast. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Be sure to tune in next week as I travel to Dubai to sit down with guide and fly fishing operator Nick Bowles. <laughs>